Hello and welcome to this, the ninth edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller and my guest this week is Martin Kemp, Professor of the History of Art at Oxford University. I met Martin to talk to him about his recent book, The Human Animal in Western Art and Science. It's a large format publication packed with illustrations, but unlike many illustrated books, it's also packed with ideas, a rich blend of art, cultural, scientific and intellectual history, which investigates how humans have responded to the animal world, describing it, studying it, depicting it, displaying it, over many centuries. The preoccupying question in the book seems to be, where is the line between animal and human? Indeed, is there a line? I asked Martin what had set him on this track. When I began writing the book, I thought it was going to be more art history, not in a constrained way, because I don't like kind of constrained art history, but I was surprised where the book took me into all these areas of the... We use animal metaphors so much and animal analogies. We obviously do it as kids all the time, that the, the telling of stories is very often done from humanised animals, and we push it through to an incredible number of areas. Um, I went into these strange areas such as feral children mm. and found that, uh, you know, we're looking at these children who were found in the jungle and were thought of as animals and created mm. a great deal of debate into automata, the making of mechanical animals and perhaps yeah. mechanical people into zoos. So <laughs> the art history somehow percolated out into uh, more areas than one could really control. And science and art were not always demarcated in the way that that we think of them today. So someone like Leonardo had interests which we would see as scientific and artistic, and they, they coexisted. Yeah, at heart, I'm a kind of Renaissance scholar, and in mm. the Renaissance, the idea that the sciences and arts were rigidly demarcated mm. uh, areas was simply not, a, not on the cards. Indeed, the word science and art didn't mean the same thing that they mean today in terms of narrowly defined boundary professional disciplines. And that went right into the 19th century. And it really is when 19th century, you get all the professions mm. defining themselves and erecting barriers. Yes. Uh, so I would take the kind of Renaissance notion of the, the confluence of what we see as different disciplines through to the 18th century. And indeed, I try to push it further. Mm. Going all the way back, I mean, even, even earlier than your book begins, because your book begins with the ancient Greeks, in essence. Yeah. But I was thinking going all the way back to cave paintings and the earliest images which man made were images of animals. And so our sort of relationship to the natural world and animals has been sort of inscribed right from the very start, hasn't it? It's very much the case that as soon as humans make images, they make them about humans and they make them about animals mm. and the relationship between them. The early cave paintings, yes, they have animals, they sometimes have hunters and so on. So this relationship and when evolution was discussed uh, post-Darwin in the 19th century, there's a lot of discussion about the competition for space mm. and the idea that we competed with animals, particularly bears, for caves. Mm. So that sense both of, of competition but also there's a deep similarity you know that we need shelter we need food and so on so there's there's both a, a sense of separating ourselves with them and somehow saying we're better than these animals but at the same time realizing that our animal needs in a sense uh, are the same we yes. compete with them and this sort of problematic becomes explicit with the ancient greeks because then then we have we actually have written documents about how we thought about our bodies and animal bodies. And you, you start by talking about the, um, the four humours in the body and the four temperaments and 
the way in which certain animals were related to particular um, human types. And you sort of, you said that, that is a persuasive notion which lasts for, for centuries, isn't it? From Hippocrates, the great founder in a, in a way of, of medicine as it still is, and Galen, the great Alexandrian physician, they developed this idea of the four humours, four separate types, which actually works rather well with personalities still as it happens, and some psychologists still use some framework like that. Uh, the, the sanguine, the melancholic, the, uh, the, the choleric and the phlegmatic, mm. and the, these temperaments. And yes, they were seen as covering the whole of the natural world, not just human beings, but animals as well. And we all have imbalances. You know, somebody who is uh, melancholic becomes, as we would think, rather sad. Mm. But if an animal has a melancholic disposition, like an elk, and it looks sad, yes. then it has a parallel with a human. So you've got these alignments of... Uh, of animals and humans and rulers and military leaders were aligned with lions the lion was thought to be fierce but just and you looked at people and you saw they had frizzy hair they had strong teeth they had big brows mm. and uh, you know they looked leonine and it works surprisingly well in an odd kind of way it hasn't got proper medical foundation but it's an amazingly powerful explanatory framework and you, in the book, you show um, some of the the artists who illustrated similarities between human types and animal types, and they're sort of lined up. But one of the images which struck me most forcefully going through the book was the Leonardo sketch for the Battle of Anghiari, because this isn't it, this one doesn't seem to be sort of conscious. He's not trying to demonstrate something. It seemed to me he was he was practicing drawing horses' heads, and maybe you can say what you know what what happened. Or what you imagine happened as he was doing that? Well, Leonardo in sort of 1504 is planning this great equestrian battle for the Florentine Council Hall on an unprecedented scale. Michelangelo was doing another battle, so it's big competition. And amongst the sketches, there is a wonderful page of uh, horses rearing and shrieking and sort of pulling back their lips to reveal their teeth in a, in a very scary way. And it's very typical of Leonardo's thought that it immediately suggests other things. It suggests a roaring lion. Mm. It then suggests a screaming warrior, shouting warrior. And that's how Leonardo worked, by lateral splashing, as it were, mm. that he'd have a, a visual intuition about something and it would move out laterally. And what that took him into was not just fixed signs of the face, you know, the, the things that don't move, mm. but it took them into what you would call pathonomics, not physiognomics. That's to say the expressions. So he's really the first person who combines the two, the fixed signs of the face in terms of character personality, but what he called uh, the motions of the mind mm. and how that infuses every aspect of our face and our hands and so on. Uh, that's an incredible drawing. Mm. And that's one mode of exploring the, the relationship between animals and humans. And philosophy in the early modern world was much preoccupied by it. And in the book, you've got sort of two, I suppose, prevailing and opposing theories, one of which is the Cartesian view that animals were simply machines. And if they seem to exhibit pain, they weren't really exhibiting pain. Another one is the Montaigne's view, which um, is, is sort of opposite to that and believes that animals have nobility and are capable of feeling sentiments. And those seem strong rivals in that period. These arguments on either side that animals are basically soulless machines which of course is 
consistent in some way with Christianity in that we have divine souls, but heaven isn't full of uh, redeemed animals. Against the, I think, basically more human reaction when people deal with animals, that they do have spirits, they have personalities, and they're more like us than, um, than that theory would suggest, that competes all the way through, and it's still running post-Darwin. Mm. It, it, it runs through... I say Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, and it goes right into the modern day. And the machine intelligence, of course. We're still mm. discussing, you know, can machines really be like humans? Can computers ultimately uh, think like human beings, be creative, have emotions, etc., etc.? So this is a great polarity. And, uh, yeah, I, get, I do it in the book via Montaigne, the great French 16th century philosopher, mm. and Descartes in, 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 the, in, in the 17th century. And they stand at the ends of this particular spectrum. It seemed to me that the argument hadn't yet been really resolved because we still have debates about the legal status of farm animals and factory farming and whether they're truly sentient or whether they're classified as agricultural goods. So, you know, it's, it's dangerous to feel too superior, I think, to, to some of the, the questions because they're, yeah. they're still alive. Again, what in a sense surprised me as I was going through the book was to find that what I was conceiving as a historical book resonated into all sorts of areas and that the question of our animal nature or our above animal nature, animals' natures in relation to humans, all these things are still absolutely there and hardly a day goes by without something being reported on the radio and somebody saying like animals. And similarly, racial typologising is not gone from from debate or discourse, is it? I mean, there was, the, there was a James Watson incident recently which, which brought all that very much to the fore. The 18th century, as anthropology uh, grew and as people began to try to differentiate systematically between races, you then got these alignments of different human physiognomies, particularly skulls. Mm. There's an enormous amount of measuring of skulls, measuring of facial angles and so on. It's very, very extraordinary. Aligning them with, with humans, different humans, primates of a more human or less human kind. So you've got these sequences before evolution, mm. these gradations as they called them. And sometimes they were simply descriptive, but of course the pernicious nature of this is fairly evident. But if you can say, well, this kind of race has a face which is closer to that of a chimpanzee in terms of the the cranial structure, yes. then the implications follow. And of course they're totally erroneous, but immensely pernicious. Mm. And I think you cancel against trying to see the book or read, read the whole of history teleologically with um, Darwin as the, the ultimate end. But it's quite hard not to do that because as empirical evidence and as science and comparative anatomy grow, there is a sense that, that people are kind of resisting the inevitable, that the inevitable conclusion is that we are part of a continuum. But, but no one's quite ready to come out and say that until Darwin. Yes, the earlier parts of the book I always had to sort of say to myself don't look at this via Darwin. Mm. And if you look at earlier images of wild uh, people, wild men, they're almost mm. always called men, primitive men as conceived, they're not on the whole like apes. They're big, they're mm. hairy, they're raw, they're kind of primitive in a general sense. Uh, but it's striking that they're not uh, simian, they're not ape-like in any way. And uh, it does show that the thinking is different. So all the time, you, as a historian, you're having to say, let's not get the Darwin filter imposed upon, upon the earlier periods. After Darwin, as soon as a primitive family are shown, they're shown as ape-like. Mm. Um, they're always shown as miserable. 
It's a funny thing uh, that uh, these uh, these early races of man, the wild men, fairly happy. Mm. You know, they have a good time. They live in nature and they have fun. They have a thoroughly good time. The the ape men, on the other hand, are clearly sitting there waiting for evolution to happen. They're, mm. they're like kind of Neanderthal bag bag women and mm. bag bag men. <laughs> it's a very strange strange thing. And the nineteenth century, as you said, was was fascinated by all these other races and freaks and you know, all these sort of the search for missing links and, and so on was something that both in popular culture and in, in science was was quite an obsession really in museums and so on. 19th century in some ways is the age of classification of course Aristotle and other mm. people are classified and Linnaeus famously mm. laid down the system of classification for plants and animals mm. but the 19th century was the great era of the hunter-gatherers in a way in terms of uh, scientists who simply accumulated vast numbers of, of items of objects from all around the world and then put them in mm. classificatory orders photography helped a lot with that because you could then have records mm. if you had to draw them all and engrave them all this is a big job but you could accumulate masses of photographs of human types galton who i don't discuss in any detail in the book tried to put all these types into order including criminal types mm. and tried to come up with a kind of er uh, criminal head you know so you could yes. and Lombroso the the great criminologist used all this science this classificatory science to differentiate between the criminal type in terms of morphological features mm. features of the cranium um, mm. it's an extraordinary enterprise it looks like very very hard science but it's it's without serious foundation yes. but it's it, there's a lot of counting goes on a lot of mm. measuring and of course once you count and measure it looks like serious science but it ultimately crumbled it didn't it didn't sort of it didn't hold up it sort of it doesn't it, under scrutiny it didn't hold up but we we somehow don't quite shake it off mm. um you know, i wonder how many of us have not looked at somebody and and thought you know this person's jabbering like a monkey or so and it's, mm. a, it's a bad thing to think but uh, uh I think if we're honest that uh, we all have to pull ourselves back from yes. uh, what a very deep-seated and ingrained prejudice is. Do you think it's a coping mechanism that's, that we've evolved or a way of, you know, not maybe classifying but of making sense of the world so it's not just a, a sea of, of data that we can't sort of navigate our way through? I think what is happening in these areas is that we've got absolutely necessary mechanisms. We have to assess someone, an animal, a person we encounter pretty quickly. We have to see, are they hostile? Are mm. they friendly? What is their demeanor? And we, we do all that instantly. We're not always right, but mm. uh, it's absolutely necessary and you have to react quickly. And there's a profound evolutionary things there. What I think we have done, which um, other animals where it works much more functionally, is we've embedded that in a cultural context. Mm. So it's got overlaid, intermingled with a lot of other conscious cultural stuff, unconscious cultural mm. stuff. So these, the byproduct of these very useful evolutionary tools we have for making a rapid assessment of, uh, of what we're confronted with have ended up by spilling out into masses of other areas and really getting out of control. Mm. And I was thinking Islam has an aniconographic tradition where you cannot depict humans and, and animals. And I wondered if that was another way of dealing with the things that we fear. It seemed to me that in the Western tradition we're dealing with the, the sort of sexuality and the violence that animals display and, and coping with it either by categorising it, distancing ourselves from it, laughing at it. 
and Islam, they're, they're, they're sort of simply closing off that possibility. But is it, do you think it's a manifestation of the same complex of, of worries that, that humans have had? The way that Islam and indeed uh, other religions at various points, including the Protestant reformers, have got mm. rid of um, figurative representations is obviously uh, the primary motivation is theological of the forbidding of a likeness mm. of a god who you cannot conceive, whereas a god is not, not something mm. that can be pictured. But I think you're right in as much as it helps enormously if we don't have to turn God or the, the saintly figures into real figures because they then become human and we begin to react to them in this, in this human way. Mm. I think Michelangelo, towards the end of his career, faced this dilemma. He found it very difficult to portray the face of Christ. Because once you do so, you turn Christ into a, another person with a slightly overlarged nose or, mm. or thin lips or thick lips or whatever, and you're in the area of individuality. And mm. in a sense, the deity is above uh, these individual quirks. So I think it's a nice idea that uh, those societies which do not uh, allow depictions of the divinity don't face the problem in a way of um, the particularization of the divine people in terms of individual humans. Mm. And again, the depiction of Christ, what, he wasn't depicted on film, was he, until well into the 20th century, so the taboo sort of remained, it had, it had tenacity. Well, when Christ begins to be depicted on film, of course, there's always a, a row about it, mm. if you show crucified Christ or whatever. And it is, a, it is a real problem. For Christianity in the Renaissance, they relied upon techniques of visualization where you said you must think of Christ as a real man. You must think of the wounds as real root wounds. And mm. part of the spiritual exercises were actually putting these events into real places. So there's a, a tendency in Christian religion to uh, particularize and personify in a, in a way which uh, other religions tend to resist. Mm. And with the 20th century and Freud and psychoanalysis, there's a whole new layer of, of depth and complexity that comes into it, it, it seemed. Yeah, in the book, I decided not to do the whole 20th century Freudian thing. That seemed to me to be a, another mm. book once you opened it up into, yes. that, into that area. And um, so I went as far as Bram Stoker and Dracula and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson mm. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and took that into the filmic era because it seemed to me that, that was essentially traditional. It mm. wasn't really Freudian and uh, the films of Dr. Jekyll are not really Freudian in a sense. They're based upon these sort of 19th century notions of types. But uh, the Freudian... Yes, is absolutely vast in this area. And, uh, of course, the art from surrealism onwards becomes very complicated. And uh, so uh, I thought it was prudent not to try to do everything. Mm. I just want to finally ask you about Degas' statue of a little dancer, because it seemed to me that was, that was a fascinating piece of art. And what you said about it opened up a whole new way of looking at it that I hadn't thought about before. Can you just sort of maybe describe the, the, the work and then... And then what? What sort of themes were, were, were being played out around it? One of the most admired and cherished of Degas' uh, statues, the work in sculpture he did, is obviously better known as a painter, is this uh, little dancer, a sort of youngish woman um, or oldish girl, yeah. in bronze, but, but with an actual tutu. Uh, the actual clothing is, um, is real clothing. And this is greatly admired and has been taken as a rather sentimental piece. Mm. Now, I'm not alone. Other scholars have looked at this before me. In looking at how that was displayed, 
and it was displayed as a work of anthropology. It was displayed in a vitrine. Mm. Um, it was displayed with images of criminals. And it's clear that her facial type, which is um, uh, not a Caucasian facial mm. type, was uh, meant to say this is a little animalistic dancer. Mm. Uh, I don't think Degas is saying you know, she is reprehensible, but I think he's thinking rather of the dancer as a kind of slightly primitive figure, almost like Stravinsky in The Rite of Spring. Uh, so it's it's seeing the act of dancing and expression. But it, the special vitrine, a special museum yes. case was built for this mm -hmm. figure. And uh, once you look at its display mode, then you read it in a different way, not as a pretty sentimental picture, but as inserted into this intellectual context. Mm. And you think Degas was, was consciously aware of of the theories that were circulating that sort of played into this? Degas is immensely clever, learned man. He came from a smart, uh, educated background and is undoubtedly aware of, uh, of these things. And indeed, the exhibiting context actually set that up. Uh, so, yes, there's no doubt that it was uh, he was thinking of these things in a conscious way, not just mm. doing it by some kind of instinct. Because I think that's one of the interesting things about the book. With the science, it's obviously explicit and reflected upon. With the art... You're never quite so sure. Sometimes, sometimes it could be in the zeitgeist, or it could be explicit, or somewhere in between. Yeah, as an art historian, you are often faced with pictures, sculptures, images which you've got no text for. The artist doesn't say mm. what they're doing. There's no good primary evidence, so you build up the context and intuitively you locate it. But in other areas like Leonardo, Albrecht Dürer, you're absolutely secure because you you've got the intellectual context. Um, it's one way in which writing about works of art is different than writing about works of literature. Was whatever interpretive puzzles the works of literature pose, they they do tell you something in a in that verbal way. Whereas the work of art, at the end of the day, is an ambiguous thing which invites the spectator to make what they can of it. And if somebody still looks at the Degas sculpture and gets great pleasure from it, mm. but doesn't know the background, then it's not right or wrong to look at it like that. It's missing a dimension, but you can't control the, the, the modes of looking, and a work of art is like that. Martin Kent, thank you very much.